Welcome to the Wandering Toward Wisdom podcast. Today, Joel and I talk about Plato's enemy, the sophists. We specifically look at their view of human nature and how it is reflected in various ways of looking at what humans are and where they come from. We specifically discussed how discuss how materialistic evolution reflects a sophistic view of human nature, how Christianity gives us an opposing view, which happens to line up very well with Plato's view. But we also discuss how Christians, despite the riches afforded us in our scripture and our creeds, have a strong tendency to embrace a sophistic view of humans as well. Where does sophistry show up on our Christian lives and thoughts? Well, we'll tell you. Wondering Toward Wisdom is a part of the TF Podcast Network. Please check out tacticalfaith.com and find our other podcast at TF Radio, as well as blogs, information about our organization, and opportunities to help support our work. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like to discuss, please email us at wondering at tacticalfaith.com. That's wondering with an underscore where the O or the A would be. Or chat with us on Twitter at wonderingwisdom. Again, an underscore where the A or the O would be. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Wondering Toward Wisdom podcast. Uh, the last few weeks we've been talking about Plato and the Bible and how Plato can help us to read the Bible better, despite all of the anachronistic uh, concerns with that. Uh, but today we're going to focus in on uh, Plato's biggest enemy, I guess you could say. And interestingly, it's not just Plato's biggest enemy, but it's an enemy of, um, of, of reading the Bible reading the Bible well, at least, uh, the, the sophists, uh, if you, if you read much Plato, you see that he, he's, he goes after the sophists pretty regularly. Now, what we understand of the sophists is that they were, uh, the kind of people that you would, um, that would, would make an argument for something. Their goal was not necessarily to defend any particular, set of values or principles as much as it was to win the argument. I mean, I, I, I have to admit I've been guilty of this before. Um, I, I once got into an argument about the color of grass and the other person had green and I won. It was a very sophist, uh, very much of a sophistry uh, kind of move for me to do that. But Plato is not just concerned with the sophists, but just that mentality that would encourage um, people like that to um, to emerge and, and also become valuable members of society or important members of society. And so when Plato attacks the sophists, he's, he's trying to say, hold on, it's great that you can argue well. It's great that you can win arguments for mu multiple positions, but but is, what is that doing to help us pursue the good? What is that doing to help us pursue truth and wisdom? Um, and similarly, when we read the Bible, I mean, we can proof text things. We can dig into uh, certain contexts or certain ideas to help us win arguments. But I don't think that's how we're supposed to read the Bible. So Travis is going to lead us through some different parts of of uh, Plato's uh, writings and today and 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 we're going to discuss um, how to be like Plato and not like a sophist. One of the primary differences nowadays between sophists and Plato is that 
sophists are everywhere and Plato's dead. So you, maybe you want to be more like a sophist than like a Plato, but you know, it's more easy. You're more easily molded if you're like Plato. So, wow. I want to, uh, so we, we talked, we've talked the last couple of weeks about, about interpretation, about reading, and there's sort of hidden within there were, were sort of hints at, at sophistry. Um, uh, I think certain ways of approaching education, interpretation, reading, and so forth are sophisticated or sophistic, I should say, and that we need to perhaps change the way that we look at ourselves, at the world, at God, and uh, the way words work and so on and so forth. And But to do this, I, I want to start relatively simple and just talk about what the sophists, what the sophists what what their view of human nature was. And one of the best ways of doing that is just to look at the Protagoras and where Plato presents Protagoras, who's considered one of the first uh, first sophists, his view of uh, his view of human creation. And I've given a few talks where I've used this, but I, I, maybe I want to make one more one more point. And, and Joel Joel hinted toward this before we get into this. I'll make one more point. Joel hinted toward this that that we don't really know precisely what the sophists believed and what they thought. They seem to be a group of people who, who primarily believed they could teach people to be excellent. Uh, the Greek word for excellent is normally translated virtue. And we tend to interpret virtue as following some sort of, some set of like divine laws or absolute laws or abstract, abstract ethical principles. But that's not really what they believed. And to be excellent in those days seemed more to do with, what we would normally think of in terms of being excellent. You're good at stuff. Um, and we'll see a little bit of this when, when we get further in, into the talking about the sophist view. But following laws, following rules, tends to make people perhaps mediocre. And the sophists saw this. I think most of us, most of us feel, maybe not mediocre, maybe that's not the concern, uh, but it makes us less fulfilled and less, therefore, less happy. And if we're less happy, it's a sign that we're less excellent. So, um, that's sort of where they're working from. And I think, in a lot of ways, we, whether Christians or not, in our society, uh, and we Christians tend to believe that fulfillment comes outside the, the constraints of morality, um, even if we don't say it out loud, or even if we don't tell ourselves in, in our heads that this is what we think. I think we tend to tend to experience life like this. But let's start by just getting to a creation story that Protagoras presents. It gives us a hint of how, of what the sophists believed about human nature. And I'd like to make a few notes about our relationship to the doctrine of evolution uh, or the idea of evolution, the idea of evolution uh, when we get through this, but let's, let's listen to the story quickly. Um, or maybe I'll, I'll go through it really quickly, but this is, if you, if you happen to have the works of Plato with you, this is from Protagoras, uh, the, the, the uh, dialogue Protagoras, and I'm starting around 320D. And and we'll try and put this in the show notes as well, a link to it online if we can find one. Yeah, somebody will put it in the show notes. <laughs> so 320D is where this starts, and here's basically the story. So Protagoras says, there was once a time when the gods existed, but mortal races, mortal races did not. When the time came for their appointed genesis, the gods molded them inside the earth, blending together earth and fire and various compounds of earth and fire. 
when they were ready to bring them to light, the gods put Prometheus and Epimetheus in charge of decking them out and assigning to each its appropriate powers and abilities. Now, if you know anything about Prometheus, his name means something like foresight. And so someone who's wise, someone who, who can look at Epimetheus, his name means something like hindsight. And you can get the idea of a person who is all about hindsight. They don't ever see what's coming. Um, and so, well, Epimetheus and Prometheus were brothers and they were, they were to give to each of the mortal races their natural powers. Epimetheus really wanted to give out the natural powers uh, and Prometheus, uh, with a remarkable lack of foresight, allowed Epimetheus to do it. And Epimetheus goes about giving out the natural powers. And just as he comes to the last of the mortal races, that is human beings, he runs out. And so human beings are born into the world. And you can see how this actually accords with reality. We're born into the world naked, weak. We're not really fast. We're not the best climbers. We can't fly. We're not the best swimmers. We're not super strong. We're not small so that we can hide in little things. We're like medium-sized, relatively weak, hairless apes who have no capacity. Like we will die from the cold, you know, if we're left outside and it's a little bit chilly. And so uh, this was a disaster. Um, this mortal race uh, was going to be wiped from the face of the earth in a matter of probably a couple of weeks. And so uh, Prometheus, you probably heard the story, he steals two things from heaven. One of them is fire, which is the, the famous story, right? And fire protects us from exposure, gives us the capacity to cook food and so on and so forth. Also protects us from animals because animals are scared of fire. And he also still steals something like wisdom, uh, called wisdom's wisdom in the practical arts. And the word here is the idea here is more the idea of being clever. So it gives us the capacity to say fashion tools to realize that we need to work together in order to survive, right? That, that sort of thing. Um, uh, but this isn't really, uh, what he says is, is this isn't wisdom in the political arts and political sounds bad, but what it means is something, the political, the political is built upon the idea of justice and so, and justice is basic, the basis, really the high point of ethics in Greek society. So to be just is to have ethics and justice is necessary for, for real politics. Um, justice is almost the opposite of what's necessary to be successful in politics these days. But I mean, that's actually been true all throughout history. That's why the sophists were such a big deal. But the idea was that we were given a kind of cleverness, but it didn't have anything to do with ethics. It, it was a kind of wisdom, but it's really a better word would be prudence or something like that. Um, the capacity to, to make prudent decisions. Um, and this kept us alive for a little while, says Protagoras. The problem is we're still dying out. And one of the issues is that we did need to work together in groups because in groups with our cleverness, we could overcome even powerful animals as we can see. Uh, and we can deal with particular like food shortages and other kinds of disasters if we work together in, as a group. The problem is there was nothing keeping us together so that the treaties would fall apart in a hurry. So there might be a situation where, you know, there's 10 of us and a lion comes into camp and we, we can fight off lions if we really work together, but there's a chance I might die. There's a chance I'll get hurt. And I realized that, you know, you, you just sprained your ankle today and you're in a lot of pain and you can't really run well. And lions usually just need one. So we all go chasing out and leave you there. Why? Because we don't care about you because we don't have any kind of moral groundwork that, that constrains our activities to support one so that we support one another. Is it, 
that there's no moral framework or there's no framework of uh, other focused morality. I mean, because that just sounds very egoistical. Uh, what you're what you're saying, like, oh, it's all about me. I'm protecting myself, which I think we would say is a form of of morality. It's just not a very good form of morality. It doesn't. Um, and so, is 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 it that there's no morality, or is it just a completely self focused morality that will throw you under the bus for self preservation if need be? Yeah, I, I think that's a better way to put it. There's there were a set of values because all all mortal creatures are clinging to their own lives and and self gain, self growth, and so on and so forth, um, and and maybe concern even for their offspring to some extent. But there was no there was no sense of being beyond what is beneficial for myself. And so uh, tr- treaties would form, things like that. You might call it like realpolitik, right? Where treaties would form, but they were purely self interested sort of arrangements arrangements between people. So that they might survive it had nothing to do with doing the right thing or being just or treating or caring for other people. It was using other people, really. And so when the time when your use came to an end, I would let it come to an end if it saved me. And so that's part of the issue that goes on here. Well, they were being killed. And so he says uh, they try to band together and survive by founding cities, but what the outcome when they did so was that they wronged each other because they did not possess the art of politics. And so they would scatter and again, be destroyed. So that's 322 C right in that area. So we'd gather together into cities to protect and we could fight off wild beasts and so on and so forth, but we'd hurt, we'd treat one another wrongly. We'd abandon one another. We'd steal from one another. We'd hurt one another. And so this is the cities eventually scattered and we would again be destroyed. And, and of course humans had been given a divine dispensation or a certain a certain element, according to um, according to Protagoras, where we alone worship the gods, and the gods they think our worship is pretty delicious. And so the fact that we're de- the die, the fact that we're being wiped out, we're still being wiped out, despite what Prometheus did for us, we're still being wiped out. Zeus fi- it finally reached Zeus, or it, it led to the point of him becoming fearful that we'd be wiped out. So he set out Hermes. Uh, this is in three twenty two C as well. Uh, Zeus was afraid that her whole race might be wiped out, so he sent Hermes to bring justice and a sense of shame to humans, so that there would be order within cities and bonds of friendship to unite them. Uh, Hermes asked how he, how asked Zeus how he should distribute shame and justice to humans. Should I distribute them as the other arts were? That is, one person gets some, one other person doesn't, and Zeus says, "Give it to all of them." Uh, for cities could would never come to be if only a few possessed these as is the case with the other arts, and establish this law as coming from me, death to him who cannot partake of shame and justice, for he is a pestilence to the city. And so shame and justice are given to given to humans in order to keep us alive. So, okay, so what, what are the major points here? First of all, there's a human nature, and, and the primary element about our human nature is we're just like other animals. We're fundamentally, we're mortal, we're fun- fundamentally seeking benefit for ourselves, and um, that, that's that's what's true. That's at the that's at like the foundation of our nature. Secondary to that, one step removed from that is cleverness and the ability to make fire. Right. So you think of us as like what we are is fundamentally animals. Then we developed or was given or we were given this 
this kind of cleverness and the ability to use fire. Two steps removed from our fundamental nature is ethics. Uh, what what is what is this what does this mean for us? I think for a sophist, what what does this say about sophists? Well, I think it suggests <clears throat> that where our fulfillment is is we find fulfillment in our in our nature, in fulfilling our nature, and so what we fundamentally are are animals. But we also have cleverness, and we use fire, and we also have ethics, which is one step removed even beyond that. Um, and so, therefore, the idea that we would be fulfilled in in submitting to the ethics that are required for personal relationships, let's put it that way, for for interpersonal relationships, uh, for civilization, those things do not fulfill us. We're fulfilled in in outside of those. And Hippias, who's an, who's another um, another sophist in the Protagoras, this is found in three thirty seven D. He says. Hippias says this, can't seem to open that page. He says, for like is akin to like by nature, but convention, which tyrannizes the human race, often constrains us contrary to nature. Convention, the Greek word is namos, and it, it keeps being used over and over again, and it has to do with laws and beauty. And what he's setting up here is the is the distinction between nature and convention, or phusis in the Greek, phusis and namos. And the idea is that convention, which are the standards that make life possible in civilization, life interpersonal relationships possible, those ethics, those constrain us. They're necessary for us to survive, but they also oppress us. What we really want to do is be fulfilled. So there's obvious examples of this. Are they saying that ethics is a way to kind of uh, help us survive uh, by going against our base instincts that if that we're always inclined to go with our base instincts and ethics is kind of this thing that pushes us away from that to actually help us survive. Whereas if we give into our base instincts, we're going to kill ourselves off. Yes, that seems pretty much precisely the case. And this myth is just a fancy myth to describe what we in fact experience. And, right, so, and that, that would mean even our personal relationships on their account are ultimately means to help us survive, not that there's anything good in and of themselves, but they're only good in as much as they help us survive. Same thing with ethics. Yeah, it's it's hard to tell here. It's it's hard. I think one of the critiques that play, so so the idea here is that there's no real personal relationships that that go beyond the usefulness of the other person to keep me alive so that I might fulfill my fundamental nature, which is just fundamentally animal, right? Um, so we're clever animals that have this tool called ethics that's sort of a necessary evil. It's like having to wear a seatbelt, right? You got to wear it because it helps keep you alive, but it can be uncomfortable and it can be annoying or whatever, right? Um, ethics are basically seatbelts. And they're also put on us from above against our against really against our desires um but it could be possible that plato has a little bit of a critique here even in the protagoras because maybe it's not entirely clear um because because hippias seems to try to describe their relationships as like important good relationships and he talks about nature you know we are um 
He said he says this. He goes, uh, this is actually right before what I just read. He says, gentlemen, I regard all of you here present as kinsmen, intimates, and fellow citizens by nature, not by convention. And so the idea is that everyone's looking for a friendship that goes beyond beyond convention, beyond what appears to be convention, right? We're looking for real personal, intimate relationships and friends. Now, there's hints that Hippias is full of it and that it didn't actually turn out that way. Or there's, but there's also hint, a hint here that sophistry is fundamentally incoherent. You can't live as a sophist through and through. You are, you will be at odds with yourself because your nature is made. This is Plato's view. We are fulfilled by being good, by living according to, to morality. That is actually because morality is tied into our very nature itself. And so this is, this is one of the main things I want, I want to get out from here, from, from Plato, because it transformed my view of Christianity. Uh, I tend, I grew up viewing Christianity as a sophist would group, would view Christianity. Uh, and there's a lot of things to talk about this. When you start talking about the nature of God, which I think we'll probably have to have that as a separate episode, but just in terms of human nature, what does it look like when you view the doctrines of Christianity as a sophist? That is, you view goodness as an as an external constraint that's put in place by the gods or by the divine, by God in our case, put in place by God to make sure that we're able to survive and maybe live in a court. Because really, you realize that this is really important. Zeus gave us ethics, not because it was good, not that it would fulfill us, but because he wanted to be worshipped. Think about that. Like, well, we'll have to get that when we talk about how sophistry affects the way we view the divine, the way we view God. But Zeus... He's no better than a clever animal himself. He, he's going to lose a human race. Is it because he's really is he is he really concerned about us? No, he didn't want to. He didn't want to lose our worship, and so he gave us ethics. Was merely a an arbitrarily formed not arbitrary. I mean, it's a tool crafted for a specific purpose, but it has nothing to do with the nature of reality itself. And you can tell that by looking at the Greek gods, right? They don't have any. They have very little, if any, share in morality. Right. They're not exactly moral beings. <laughs> so, so we as Christians, when we think about our fulfillment, so I've always thought about, and may, maybe some of you, if you're Christians out there, think the same thing. And if you're not Christians, maybe you think this too, that heaven just sounds terrible. It It sounds like what kind of place would it be where I, I go and I have to follow I'm constrained, I'm utterly constrained to do only good things. I, well, well, it sounds... Let, let, let me let me push back and say, is that necessarily everyone's view of heaven? Because um, it, it seems like there's an element of heaven is the place where my desires are fulfilled and... Um, even maybe my not so good desires, but it's going. But I'm going to be protected from the negative consequences of my bad of the fulfillment of my bad desires. Um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's sort of the you know seventy some virgin sort of thing. The uh, yeah, I think 
I I think that that's that's an interesting way to put it. I think what we have are actually conflicting views of what heaven is or new creation, mm-hmm. if you want to actually go according to what scripture says. But <laughs> we have we have conflicting views of I'll just say heaven because that's what people say of what heaven is. Um, we or they feel I should say they feel conflicting because we're sophists. Let me put it mm-hmm. that way. If they feel like they conflict because they're sophists. First is it's a place where there will be no sin. There will be only moral uprightness. And the other thing is it's going to be fulfilling, truly fulfilling. But those seem opposed because the things that make me the happiest are things I'm not supposed to be doing. Now, that's not actually true with me. It's true with all you people. It's not true with me. Well, I'm perfectly good. But. Well, it, it it seems like there's that you can also have the view that there's no sin, but that just means anything I do is okay. Huh, that's so it's sort of like an innocent, an innocent pleasure seeking, Al- almost, but not really innocent. Um, you know, it it just it just seems like there's a it, that heaven is for some people on some views. Um, or at least when you talk to some people, you know, heaven's going to be where they get to do whatever they want and it's going to be okay to do whatever you want and everyone's going to be able to do whatever they want. And it's, it's, it's a weird, uh, so so are you talking more like the Santa Claus, Santa Claus, God, yeah, cultural acceptance of all things. Heaven is, yeah, I'm thinking more, I mean, my, my target, my target in the way I'm thinking are those who kind of grew up in conservative Christian circles. I mean, I can still consider myself, I mean, I, I don't know what conservative means anymore, but Orthodox, I'm an Orthodox Christian, um, small or Orthodox, not Eastern, anyway, whatever. <laughs> but, uh, but there are those who are, who do view heaven as more like well, something almost maybe more like the good place. Right. Right. I mean, I can say the F word all I want, but it just comes out fork. Or, you know, but that's sort of like my doing something bad sort of gets... My intention is bad, but it always comes out good. Right. Right. Which, uh, um, which I don't want to give any spoilers, but I don't know if it's actually like that in a good place or if that's just the way the, whatever mind. Okay. So, um, well, spoilers in the last season. I, I, I need to see the last season. I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. I think, I think our society tends to see God as, how do I put it? Sort of. Ethics don't matter that much to him or his ethics are something like, you know, if, as long as you're nice and you're not killing people, come up here and you can have all the candy you want um, and never get sick to your stomach. Um, I think that's that's maybe a broader cultural view. Um, uh, but I, I, among among con- more conservative Christians, say evangelicals or whatever, I think we have a tendency to see, I mean, I grew up thinking I didn't want Jesus to return until I'd done a bunch of stuff because I was pretty confident, you know, the most important one, of course, being, you know, I was, I was a good boy. And so, but I really wanted to have sex before Jesus came because I knew I couldn't, you're never going to do anything that fun in heaven. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's, I'm just coming right out and saying it, right. That's, that was my, that was my sense. And so, um, I didn't see heaven as fulfill as fulfilling. I saw it as sterile. 
yes a sterile place where i guess we sing songs in a i mean in a worship service for eternity but for some reason we have mansions or something too um and uh so you get the sense that but we're also told that it's going to be a place of fulfillment and joy so it's a place of fulfillment and it's a place where everybody's good and those don't seem related and so i think some people err on the side of well you're meant to worship God, and so that's what you're going to do. And other people err on the side of, actually, it's going to be fulfilling, which means I'm going to be able to do whatever I want, right? Because we're trying to, we try to resolve, and so we usually pick one, one of the horns of the dilemma instead of trying to figure out, could these possibly fit together? Well, they don't fit together if you're a sophist, because a sophist sees goodness as opposed to, or at least, it's like, it's like our clothing. It's not really who we are. It's some ex- externality that doesn't really relate to our nature. So, um, so I, I think it would be accurate to say that a sophist would would be the kind of person who, with regard to heaven, would be looking for the loophole to make sure that they got in, uh, and you know, and so that they're not so much concerned about, um, you know, anything but do I get in in the end. And yeah, that's yeah. Their goal is to get in. Their goal isn't to belong. Maybe you could put it that way. Yeah. And so you could think of uh, the story of the rich man and Lazarus, which I keep coming back to ever since I read Peter Van Inwagen's uh, book on the problem of evil. I think is what it was. Um, he talked about this, but the the rich man and Lazarus, where, where uh, you know the rich man's you know in torment, and he ta- he says Abraham, you know, could you please you know. Can I go tell my brothers? Abraham says, no. So he says, well, you can just send Lazarus to tell my brothers and warn them of this. And Abraham says, listen, even if even if someone rose from the dead, I mean, they've, they've got the law and the prophets. If they can't, if they're not convinced by that, you might say, then even someone rising from the dead isn't going to change their mind. And again, I've brought this up over and over again, but I always thought that was ridiculous. I was like, what kind of Bible story is this? This is absurd. Of course they would have someone rising from the dead, which it would change their mind. But Abraham's point isn't that, not that they wouldn't be, you know, surprised by someone rising from the dead and warning them about what's to come. And they probably would be even convinced that is in fact the case, that there is a hell and a heaven and so on and so forth. What Abraham seems to be saying is this would simply go into their investment information on how to acquire the best retirement sort of thing. And so it's not that they would come to love God. It's that they would come to do what they needed, what they felt they needed to do to get in for the sake of themselves. And this is a sophist view of ethics. Ethics is a tool. It's not something to submit to. If you submit to it, you'll never be happy. And in fact, Thrasymachus in the Republic, who arguably is a sophist, not arguably, he is, um, he, he talks about justice being the advantage of the stronger. And what he means by that is that justice... Goodness is what you is what you is is what the idiot does when they submit to the rules of those over over them. And he says the 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 most excellent kind of person is the person who, well, that the highest excellence is the one who can overthrow those that are over them and establish their own rule. But second only to that are those who, who, can make themselves appear to be good but are always getting fulfilled in the shadows, so to speak. They're breaking the rules in the shadows, right? And so uh, it's sort of like us when we go to church, right? We go to church, 
we put on our masks for the coronavirus, not the other masks. <laughs> we make ourselves very presentable. We might even cry and get emotional and so on and so forth. And then when nobody's looking, we do our, uh, we do the stuff that we enjoy, right? So when you're thinking of the end of a hard week, time to sit down and relax and find some peace. You don't think I would, I sure wish I could go to church right now. You think, you know, I don't know, you know, you know, stuff that isn't necessarily bad, but like stuff that isn't, you might not argue it's beneficial, but you know, you watch the good place. Yeah. You have a drink. Our fulfillment is generally not found in being good. It's found in, in getting stuff for ourselves. Even if that stuff isn't necessarily bad, it's about consuming. I consume good food. I consume entertainment. I consume the people around me. That's where fulfillment is. And the, the ability to, the, having the power to, to acquire the things and the people I want to consume is the height of human joy. Goodness is just a thing you have to, uh, it's a play you have to act out so that you don't get rejected by society because we need ethics to survive. I, my point I'm trying to make is that's not right, but that's what we feel. That's what we experience. And the fundamental conflict between Plato and the sophists is this conflict is the good, something you simply play out so that you can get what you want or is the good, what you want. I think we like to say that the good is what we want, but it's really like, do we, do you really feel that that's the case? I, I, I think it would be more accurate to say we want to want the good. You know, we, we look at it and we say, we know that's what we should want. And, and so sometimes we'll even tell ourselves, that's what I really want. And we'll try and act like that's what we really want while still deep down wanting those other things and, and not really doing anything to actually try to change our desires. It's a step in the right direction to at least want to want the good. Right. Um, but you, you'll notice that Protagoras, and this is where it starts to get interesting and applicable in so many different ways, but how you believe you are fulfilled tells you how you perceive human nature, particularly your nature and your identity. One of the interesting things about contemporary society is a kind of, if I might call it this, a kind of honesty that's really ugly and bad. It's, it's an authenticity that what we actually believe about ourselves is that we are animals and our fundamental identity is in getting fulfilled in the way that we desire. And so we begin to, we begin to identify ourselves by what we wish to consume. I, I, right? Yeah. I, I mean, you think about it and when people talk about being authentic, it either means, it, t it tends to mean that, um, I'm just using this as an ability to be a jerk about things, or I'm using this as an ability to, or as, as an opportunity to emotionally vomit all over everyone and everything. And if they think that's being authentic, then they're showing themselves to either be a jerk or someone who emotionally vomits over everyone as opposed, I mean, because you can tell when someone's sharing who they are in a way that's, that's intimate in a way that, that draws people together that is done in a way that ultimately leads to good. And you can tell when people 
are authentic in a way that is just about them being about themselves and doing what they want and and saying what they want and and getting what they want. And maybe maybe it is appropriate to call it authenticity. Uh, it's just a lot of the authenticity tends to end up being really ugly. Well, it's an authenticity based on a particular... I think there's a kind of honesty there, but it's an honesty based... And this sounds really arrogant to me, but it's an honesty that's based on, a, I think, a wrongful perception of themselves, an erroneous perception of themselves yeah. as fundamentally an animal. And, and here's... This is going to sound... I'm going to try to offend everyone all at the same time. <laughs> One of the things that 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 Christians get get frustrated with is that is that people identify as say you know LGBTQ or whatever you can go down go down the line, and it seems like in, in some of those they're identifying that they're they're establishing an identity based on the particular sexual desire they have. So specifically, you know the LG, uh, LGB, I guess, on the particular kinds of sexual desires they have. And we, you know, we look at that and say, oh, that's terrible. I can't believe they're doing that. But we're doing the same thing, right? Because, and I'm not, not, not outright, like we haven't done it outright, but, but when we, again, I don't, I don't know where I learned this. I don't know how I learned to be a Christian sophist, but I grew up believing that that there is an opposition, I'll put it this way, there's an opposition between the goodness of God and the fulfillment that, the fulfillment that, the, the things that make me happy. I, I believe that from, and that's partly because of my sin, and it's maybe partly because of how I was taught Christianity, but God's desires and my desires are at odds. Therefore, my fulfillment is at odds with God's fulfillment. And I need to stop being a selfish jerk and desiring being fulfilled. And, and I, and I know, sir, yeah, it's not about your happiness. It's about God's glory. Sure, sure, whatever. Um, except God created us and wants us to be fulfilled. So, but the idea is that we have set up this 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 conflict between God's desires and our own fulfillment. And so we have already established our identity as being opposed to God and opposed to the good and therefore fundamentally animal. Well, uh, Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and, and let me just explicitly say something that's going to offend plenty of people. I, I want to get on the offending board uh, today, too. Um, Welcome. <laughs> when, you, when you put as a, as a bedrock of your theology the total depravity of humanity, you have immediately, from the start, set humanity as being contrary to God as our desires are automatically contrary to God's desires and which, which makes it very hard to go down a different path than this soft, this path of sophistry that we're talking about today. Yeah, that's, and, and the idea, the fundamental aspect of human nature is not depravity. Amen. The fundamental aspect of human nature is that we were created in God's image. Amen. If, if you start with sin as fundamental to our human nature, then we are beings that are at our very heart will cannot be fulfilled in God. And if that's the case, then our very identity is opposed to God. And I mean at, at the at the fundamental element that and that also means that we couldn't that we weren't created by God. Right? <laughs> 
which that seems a bit of a problem. You're, I mean, you might be able to get, you might be able to squeeze, you know, some element, some way of understanding total depravity out of scripture, but you, you, it's hard to get away from the fact that we are created by God. God made us good. That's right there at the beginning. God made us good and he, we were made for him. That's Augustine, right? The father of the father of the total depravity view. Um, God, God made us good and made us for him to be fulfilled in him. That's what's fundamental about us. Sin is us being broken. It's not our nature. Now, we talk about having a sin nature, but that's sort of like saying I have a broken, I have a broken, my, my parts are broken. Um, uh, it doesn't mean that I am fundamentally, who I fundamentally am is sinner. Sin is opposed to our nature. It is not our nature. That's really important. If you don't get that, everything else begins to, it, it doesn't go crazy at first, but when you begin to look at something like, why would somebody identify as the, the sexuality that they're aimed at? Well, why do you identify as the job that you have? Why do you identify yourself by the money that you have? Why do you identify yourself by the clothes that you have, by the kind of relationships you, you have, your business relationships and sexual relationships and everything else? Christians tend to do this because we find our we, we think our fulfillment is found not in God, but in all the garbage that the world has to offer. And that's why we feel very uncomfortable about going to heaven. And heaven, the only place worse than heaven is hell in a lot of our views. We think about spending eternity worshiping God. Ugh. I mean, can I at least have like a candy bar and maybe a little bit of pornography while I'm there? I mean, can I have something to like break the monotony? Because why would I want God? When we have a view that's like that and, and people are being raised to believe that way. And by the way, ask people about heaven. Ask the, the average evangelical Christian about heaven. And if you press them on it, you realize, yeah, they're probably, if I had to choose between an eternal worship service and just disappearing, maybe the disappearing would be nice, right? Um, well, it's, it all depends on the music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe, a, you know, if you had a good band, because worship is just singing songs, apparently. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, no, but but the idea is that is that it just sounds it's the tedium of immortality, as the philosophers call it. Like, what could possibly be so fulfilling about singing songs to God? Um, almost doing anything, and so, um, but that's confusion. I mean, part of the t the the problem with things not being fulfilling for eternity is it's. I think that's also based on a sophistic view of humanity, rather than a platonic view. Because the idea, again, the sophistic idea is that it is something in our nature to be animal. Our nature is fundamentally animal, and therefore our fulfillments are fundamentally animal. And the, the fulfillments of animals are fundamentally the consumption of things. The eating, the drinking, the acts of reproduction, and fundamentally, really, more, most importantly, power over other things. The power to manipulate that, manipulate my environment, power over my environment in some way. Um, right to be able to swim fast, fly, hide, strength. That's all the fun. That's the fundamental, right? The will to power, you might say, uh, if we want to pull Nietzsche in here. So that's fundamental. 
That's where our fulfillment is found. Our fulfillment is not found in goodness. That's a sophistic view. I'm afraid that's most of our view as well. And so when you look at society around us and we wonder why some of our stuff, some of our proclamations to society are somewhat anemic and they fall flat, it's because while on the surface they're opposed, I may be opposed to particular lifestyles on the surface, at the heart, I agree with them. I agree that, well, I mean, your fulfillment's not found in, in the goodness of God. It's found in getting the stuff that you want. I'm just hoping I get some stuff that I want when I'm in heaven. But it sounds like I have to hang out with the goodness of God, which really didn't sound that great. Right. But I, that's, that's false. Yeah. That's a misunderstanding of human, of human nature. Yeah. And, and I, I think, I mean, if you talk to, to Christians the the feeling is often Jesus yeah i could hang out with jesus for a long time god the father uh, i don't know and you He's know sort of mean yeah and you know it, it we we have this we we want to use jesus to affirm our desires and not look to transform our desires. Um, you know, we we want Jesus to, you know, we, we look at the, the woman caught in adultery and we love the part where Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. You know, and that's the first thing he says to her. That's a hugely important thing. It's a, it's a thing that I think a lot of Christians overlook when we want to get into the, the, the game of, of holding others accountable to to the rules that we don't really like, but if we're holding other people accountable to them, uh, maybe they're a little better. But right. you know, the, the go and sin no more is the tough part. It's the part that um, that we we pay lip service to, but we what are we doing in our lives for that to be a reality, or or is is it just something that? Jesus said, knowing that we would, could never do that. And it just shows that how, how much we need him to rescue us. Um, and, uh, on, on a brief side note, uh, Sky Jatani just came out with a book called, what if Jesus was serious, where he's looking at the sermon on the Mount and saying, what if Jesus really meant that? What if it wasn't just painting this picture of, of the, the perfect life that we could never live up to. What, what if, what if that's the life that gives us fullness? What if that's the life that, that gives us fulfillment? What if that's the kind of life that getting to heaven and worshiping God for eternity is, is wonderful for? Yeah, that's interesting. What if Jesus was serious? That's just a funny title. Um, <laughs> so I want to, I want to make one, one more comment about this. Uh, and it's something that's come up in a few of our podcasts in the past. And I, I kind of want to emphasize it again. Uh, I'm not a scientist. Um, I'm not a biologist. I'm not a, any of this. I'm not any form of scientist. But there's, there's a lot of debate. Or there's been a lot of debate about creation um, and the nature of evolution and whether, you know, should we oppose evolution? Should we try to find some sort of uh, harmony with evolution. Uh, do you know how do we read the first chapters of the Bible and so on and so forth? I'll tell you my problem with evolution. 
The problem with evolution is it's another form of Protagoras' myth, the way it's normally understood. So my issue with evolution, for the sake of today's podcast, has nothing to do with the science behind it, the evidence supporting it, how old the earth is, or any of that kind of stuff at this point. It has purely to do with the story of evolution and the development of ethics. The story of evolution tells us something about human nature. This is the problem. It tells us we're fundamentally animals. Then we develop cleverness and the capacity to create fire, to use fire. And then we developed an ethic that allowed us to gather together into like herd animals, except actually into cities. And we are basically herd animals collected into cities with a with a tremendous capacity to use to create and use tools that has given us, you know, power over the world. The problem with evolution is is that it's a sophist a sophist view of human nature. And again, there's nothing new under the sun. Evolution is just reiterating what Protagoras said. Now it has a little more scientific, uh, you know, evidence and acumen supporting it, but but it's the same story when it comes down to human nature and human fulfillment, because that's what really matters to me. How old the Earth is doesn't really matter to me. How God brought us about doesn't really matter to me. What matters to me is what we are. What are we fundamentally? What did God create us to be? So, I don't. I know this is a dangerous thing to say, depending on you know if anybody ever listens to this. Um, who cares about this sort of thing? It's a dangerous thing to say that I don't really care about it, but I, I can't really care about it because I'm not a scientist. I don't, I'm not well versed in that area. But I am a I am somewhat a philosopher and somewhat of an of a theologian. But I am trying to follow Christ and the and Plato. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the idea is that sophistry is bad. Sophistry is a fundamental misunderstanding of human nature, and it's going to lead us to misery and pain and division and so on and so forth. And it keeps telling you that where you find fulfillment is in using others and taking, consuming, take, 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 eat, eat, eat. Whereas Plato and Christianity, what Plato says, what you, you find fulfillment in the good, uh, actually producing, creating in the presence of the good is what Plato says. That sounds a lot like Christianity, where our goal is to be co-creators alongside God. We're not sitting in a worship service in heaven singing songs at God. We were called from the beginning of creation to create alongside the creator. And uh, maybe not alongside in the, you know, the Mormon sense, but like as, you know, vassals under the suzerain uh, to create, to help to work with God in his creation. And I think that will be our eternal act of worship is to constantly be in the act of creation. I like the idea of we're going to be terraforming the universe, but that's that's my own sort of semi-sci-fi view. But we're doing something. We're creating in the presence of the of the good who's called God. So, so to push back a little bit, um, from a materialistic evolution standpoint, what you said, I, I don't see a way to tell the story in a different way. If we bring it in a theistic evolution my, mindset, can we tell the story in a way, or at least I, I think that we can tell the story in a way that, that lines up much more with that second account that, that you gave that, that, that you know, Plato says that that is the Christian view um, much more than you could possibly do that with materialistic evolution 
evolutionary account. Yeah. Yeah. I think materialistic evolution is just, it's trapped in sophistry. It can't get out of it. Uh, ethics is, I mean, you might, uh, you know, I've read, I've read through Sam Harris's stuff, for example, on, on ethics where he tries to give science as a support for it. And, you know, you know, you, you can kind of, you can, you can do a little bit of semi-utilitarianism and throw in a little bit of whatever, but he never gives a ground for ethics. He just says, you know, we all think this, so therefore we should kind of go that way. That's kind of what he does uh, and throws in a little bit of utilitarian stuff, but he's not a utilitarian because he realized that doesn't really work. But theistic evolution, all, all that suggests is that like who we fundamentally are is, is, is what God has, who's what our creator, the one who made us, what his intention is for us to be is who we are, mm-hmm. right? What God says comes into being. That's a fundamental claim of creation, right? Mm-hmm. God is the one who calls things that are not and makes them come into being, right? And so, and what does God, what has God called us to be? Well, look at Genesis 1 and then look all throughout scripture. You know, we're meant to be, we're co-heirs with Christ. We are in Christ. We are we are to judge the angels. I mean, there's all this kind of glorified language about who we're about what we're supposed to be. It's far less of a concern how God went about doing it. Now, you know, you can get into the you know, like Ken Ham's view that if there's a particular, and you know, it's it's not an unreasonable view um, that you know you have to read the bio, the the first chapters of the Bible in a particular way, and if you read those. And if you claim that, and if you don't read them that way, then you, then the whole Bible falls apart, and you don't have a reason. You don't have a reasonable hermeneutic. And if you deny that they're true, then the, then the veracity of the whole Bible falls apart, and then you can't even trust that Jesus is who he says he was, and then you're not saved, and blah blah. You know, the whole it's just a domino effect, um, and it's all based on a particular way of reading. Well, you know, I'm not Ken Ham. Um, I like ham, uh, but mainly for eating, and so I. I don't, you can go anywhere you want there. That's not, that's not my issue. My issue is, you know, do, do what you want that. That's not the point of this. The point of this is materialistic evolution throws you into sophistry. It can't help but throw you into sophistry in the way that we've been describing it so far. Um, theistic evolution and, you know, if the earth is 6,000 years old or so, they both lead you out of sophistry they should lead you out of sophistry, both of them, because the view is that God created us, had an intention for us, and gave us a nature that was meant to be fulfilled in him. It doesn't matter if it took him 20 million years and he used evolution, or if it took him 10 minutes or, you know, 24 hours and he, you know, did it however he did it. It's both his word coming to pass. And, and I'm, I'm going to stick my neck out here and say, oh boy if we're reading the Bible to give us information or to show us the loopholes um, to get in, that's very, uh, that's, that's a sophistic mindset. Um, yes, the Bible is truth, but to insist that, that the Bible uh, has to be read in one particular way and in every certain, every, uh, every verse, um, that's missing the point of what the Bible is trying to do. The Bible, you know, as we talked about last time, the Bible, reading the Bible is, is not written, you know, no part of the Bible is written to us, but the Bible was written for us. We, we need to understand 
how we fit into the the larger arc and to insist that based on scripture it had to be one way over the other uh misses the point the point is god created god was behind this all and when we start to put the how or the specifics of the how above or at the same level of the fact that it was god who created us for a purpose we have fallen into a sophistic trap we are are placing the wrong things in the front and we're we're looking to gain power in some way by that focus rather than focusing on on what drives the story there's a lot of there's a lot of debate that goes around this kind of topic and and I'm fearful of trying to get into it in in this one i i think i think christians are correct to be very suspicious of evolution but i think their suspicion I feel like the most important element here has to do with God's nature. Well, I mean, we're going to get to that, but God's nature and how God and who God created us to be. And I think we feel like there's something wrong here, but then we attack the wrong thing. Well, it it's like planning his book. Alvin Plantinga wrote a book called Where the Problem Really Lies, and he says the issue isn't with evolution, it's with the materialism that drives materialistic evolution. Yes, because there's sophistry without evolution, but evolution just gives the sophistry a nice material materialistic evolution gives sophistry sophistry a nice intellectual foundation that says, look, this is fundamentally who we are. Because what Christianity is really concerned about is not how old the earth is, and not how God particularly brought how God specifically brought things into being. It's concerned about who God is and who we are. Now there are some there's I mean we could we could get into the theist evolution stuff uh, and and arguments for and against and so on and so forth, but I'm not ex, I'm not an expert in that field and here's why I don't care <laughs> I just don't care that's I mean and maybe I should care but it's just I don't have time for that I've 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 Plato to read and Nietzsche to read I don't have time to read that garbage so. Um, Anyway, but the point is, and the I mean, maybe you shouldn't follow my example. And part of the reason why I don't care is just that's just my personality. It's just not something I care about that much. Um, maybe well, you should care. Well, well, I, I the the if you care, you should care in subordination to the reality that God drove the whole thing. And yes, and and yes, and if if you start to move any of it up to the level of of the fact that God drove the whole thing. That's problematic, but but when you keep the focus on that, there are plenty of other things that we can talk about that that are hugely important too. Um, I, I mean, I th- I think a lot of Christians get hung up on on the how on both sides, and um, and so because of the hang up, there might be a point a place to address it. But on the whole. I, I think we the 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 thing. I mean, we got to keep the main thing the main thing, and when we yeah. lose sight of the main thing is when problems arise on both sides. Both yeah, directions. and I, I I I'm interested in it in a sense of curiosity, but it doesn't move me one way or another on right. my view of God. Right. Let's put it that way. Maybe that's a better way to put it. There's nothing about my faith that rests on whether it were ev- it was evolution or whether the Earth is young. It just doesn't matter to me. 
it's 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 intellectually curious and interesting. Yeah. Like I like I like science. I, I'm not an expert in it, but I love looking at all the stuff they find out. But it just doesn't matter to me. Yeah. It doesn't matter to my faith. Yeah. It doesn't matter to my faith. Amen. And that that's kind of the point I'm trying to make. The rest of it, y'all do your science and try to figure out how old the earth is and what mode we came into being. That's fun. That's really interesting. It just my faith just doesn't depend on it. Um and so I guess that's kind of the point I'm trying to make. So all of this is is sort of an introduction to sophists and sophists and the view of human nature. And again, it's how have we Christians been infected by it? And again, again, this whole we're going to do a kind of a list long series on maybe somewhat long series on kind of Plato and Christianity and what Christians can learn from Plato. This is this is the beginning of it. I think next time we're going to talk a little bit about how this begins to infect the way that we view. God. Yeah. Um, which gets really, really fun. And we're going to be spending some time in the youth of Rose. So if you, you know, if you're, re- if you're listening to this and you want to do a little bit of prep work, read the youth of Rose. And we're going to talk about, talk about that and, and show how Plato actually gives us some hints about how one should view God in order to avoid it, how, what a God would look like if you view God as a non-sophist. Yeah. If that's, if that's a clear statement. And so we'll get into a little bit of that, and uh, then we can look as we do it. We'll do what Joel and I do best, and that is insult us, insult ourselves as Christians, and talk about how we might be worshiping a god of the sophists, not a god of the Bible. Um, to to take Pascal's phrase and change it, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not a god of the sophists. And so uh, the word there is philosopher, but I mean psh, tomato, tomato. So. <laughs> Anyway, I think we're done. Yeah. So thanks for listening. This is Travis. This is Joel. Have a great day. Mm -hmm.